Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the QB11 show. I am your host, Doug Scott, and of course, I am joined by Mr. QB11 himself. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Doug? I'm good. I'm really excited to get this podcast started. Episode one is very exciting. Um, can't wait to see where where this goes. Yeah, it'll be fun. Okay, so on today's episode, first and foremost, we're going to introduce this podcast and what we're looking to do on this show over the next coming months and years. And we'll dip a little bit into Oregon recruiting. We're going to talk about the quarterback position. And then we'll go around the conference and give you some updates around the Pac-12. And then finally, we'll talk about college football in general and and the greater landscape there and some of the, the interesting things that are going on around college football right now. Okay, so here we are, the QB11 show, covering Oregon, the Pac-12, and the national college football landscape. QB, what kind of things do you uh, do you envision us talking about on this podcast going forward? So obviously the show is going to be Oregon-centric because we're both Oregon fans. Um, but I think that there's broader college football topics that don't get discussed enough on the West Coast um, from the ever-shifting landscape of college football from a TV deal and conference realignment standpoint. Um, betting odds across the country, um, just national storylines. Like just a week ago, we had Saban and Jimbo at each other's necks. Uh, things of that nature. I think we, it's going to be more of a broad college football focus show uh, with obviously a strong hint of Oregon flavor just due to the fact that we spend the majority of our time, our free time, um, on the Oregon on the Oregon sites and, and in the Oregon spaces and, and following recruiting and um and, and the and the schemes and the staff and everything that's that's going on in the Oregon world. So uh just just a broader spectrum of of college football topics on top of the Oregon uh, related issues. Yeah, I I'm really looking forward to that. I love I love Oregon football and I love talking about the Pac-12, but I also really really love talking about all of the things that are going around going on around the national the national landscape and there's a lot there's a lot of meat there right now it's a great time to be talking about that stuff so i'm looking forward to doing that today and on our future episodes as well absolutely with with things changing as quickly as they are and with no actual football to discuss right now we're coming into a pretty hot period for recruiting um but not with neither of us actually following recruiting and having a lot of like inside information um on that kind of stuff it's best for us to focus on 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 the broader topics and and the uh, the trend lines in college football, which I I think you and I both have a pretty good understanding of where things are moving, or at least I think we have a good idea enough to speak confidently about it. So, yeah, and I think we'll have guests from time to time on this show. Um, not not every week, not to not this week, not this show, but I think we'll, we will have guests over time whenever it's relevant for that particular episode. So I think that's a that's a good kind of broad overview of what we're we're aiming to do with this show. We, we again we want it to be Oregon focused. We know that the majority of people that tune in are going to be Oregon uh, fans and people who are interested in the Oregon space. But uh, we really want to shine light on some of the more foundational structural changes that are taking place in college football from a rules standpoint, conference realignment. Well, with that, let's jump right into our first one. Um, it is recruiting season. Um, Oregon has has a number of recruits in this class already, and a number of upcoming visits. But of course, you know the key to every class, at least the big ticket item that everyone wants to talk about, is who's the quarterback? Who's the quarterback? And and Oregon is in on on several um, you know highly rated quarterbacks, top ten quarterbacks in this class. And I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about QB's gonna talk about two of those today. So QB, why don't you um, why don't you tell us a little bit about 
Dante Moore. Yeah, so Dante Moore, obviously the big fish that remains in the class, five-star of Detroit. Uh, kind of a, an interesting thing. Typically, the Midwest isn't known for producing a ton of top-end quarterback talent. And with the NIL era in full swing and, and quarterbacks kind of just getting slingshot all over the country from a regional standpoint, um, Oregon seems to have kind of put their chips in this basket, at least on the top end of the board. Um, Moore's a, a 6'2", 185-pound kid. Um, not the like biggest, most toolsy kid from a just a pure physical standpoint. Like He's not a 6'5", 230-pound guy. Um, but from an athletic standpoint and a coordination standpoint, he's, he's probably the most impressive guy to me. Uh, but I'm also... I've my inherent biases towards the big strong quarterbacks have kind of moved over the years. I'm I'm starting to see additional value especially at the college level and having guys who are really twitchy coordinated athletes who can extend plays with their feet. Um obviously with there has to be a certain baseline level of of height unless you're a, a real rule breaker in the sense of like a Kyler Murray or or Bryce Young. Um but but you don't really you're not compromising physical traits and tools with more um to the extent that you might need a super special skill set with somebody else who's smaller so more he's got good size um he doesn't have the biggest arm in the class but he has plenty of arm the, the thing that really impresses me about him just watching him at the high school level is one he's playing against the best competition in his state um he's really being asked to shoulder a lot of the load from a production standpoint there's they're they're throwing the ball in. They're they're not just like taking the occasional shot over the top. He's not just throwing to guys that are wide open running down the field. Like they're running an actual coordinated passing game. Not again, not on the level that you're going to expect at a power five institution, but for a high school, it's one of the more advanced passing games I've seen. And he's extremely extremely efficient. Like he's a 72% passer, threw for over 3,000 yards last year, a bunch of touchdowns, like five picks. Um, again, the statistics at the high school level don't matter to me as much as the tools, but what you see watching him is a guy who's in real control, plays the game at his own pace, which is something that doesn't matter to me as much when I'm watching a kid who's playing against like lower level competition. But when you're playing against good competition and you're in tightly matched and contested games and you're just playing at your own speed, you're not being rushed by the circumstances around you. He's really, really good when he has to move off platform. Uh, you give him any space at all, all from a lot of funky body angles because of just the ability to go from off-platform to on-platform with great balance in an instant. So to me, he's just really technically advanced. He obviously has a good feel for the game. There's no such thing as a sure thing in, in high school quarterback evaluating or recruiting, but from a skill set standpoint, it's really tough to argue that there's more than maybe two guys with better natural tools. So Oregon's in a good spot. I uh, Hopefully they can they can close the deal. But if not, I think we've got some other good good options to talk about. Yeah, so Dante Moore <clears throat> officially visited Oregon about a month ago in late April. <clears throat> he is the um, you know number four overall recruit in the in the current class according to the composite, a consensus five star point nine nine, uh, number three quarterback in the class out of Michigan, and then moving down to Avery Johnson out of Mays, Kansas, uh, number eleven ranked quarterback in this class. Consensus four-star, top 150 player. Tell us a little bit about Avery Johnson. So Avery Johnson's a little bit more of a projection than Moore is. Not in the sense that they're not all projections, but uh, there's additional skill development that has already taken place for Moore that probably is still to come for for Johnson. Johnson grows up in in central Kansas, 
not exactly a hotbed for high-end quarterback uh, training and, and coaching. Um, but he's made like very marked improvements and strides over the last few years. I was just the other day watching some clips from him, um, which I thought were more recent than they were. I, I looked at the date wrong. Um, from two years ago when he was at the Florida State camp as a sophomore to be, and there was some like pretty obvious uh, disjointedness between his lower half and his upper half throwing the ball. Uh, balls are kind of spraying all over the place because of that. Um, but then just seeing him as he's become more coordinated and matured into his body along with additional training and, 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 and repetitions, he's, he's synced up a lot over the last few years. And you get to see the natural athleticism start to shine through. He's a very, very, very explosive runner. Um, he's an explosive athlete. I mean, he's throwing down 360 dunks in his basketball games. And, and he's... So the athletic explosiveness and the, and the talents is there. And he seems to be one of those kids where like body movements just come naturally to him because as he's received better coaching, things have started to come together for him from a consistency standpoint and a mechanical standpoint. Again, I don't think he's a finished product by any means on that front, but when you're just looking at someone from a raw athletic tool standpoint, he's a big kid who can really, really run, who has a live arm. He's really tied through his court. He's, he's an explosive, he's a natural explosive athlete and that because of his coordination, I think like being a multi-sport athlete really contributes to this. He can transition that explosiveness from his lower body through his arm. He's not one of those guys who is an athlete playing quarterback, but he doesn't have the core athleticism to transition that explosiveness um, from his movements to his throwing. So the ball pops off his hand really well. Strong arm kid, um, just a lot, lot of talent, but he's obviously playing against a much lower level of competition, so that has to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, there, I think between him and Moore, you're seeing a a pretty consistent philosophy on quarterback recruiting where they, they, they want to have guys who are good athletes, who are twitchy athletes, who can extend plays and make plays when plays need to be made, but they aren't, they are definitely prioritizing guys who are throwers first, uh, guys with good fundamental foundations and guys that have a projectable skill set to run a modern spread RPO based offense. So, um, I, I really like both of these kids. I think that I, the more I've watched Johnson over the last few days, just kind of familiarizing, familiarizing myself with him, the more he's grown on me. And that's, I mean, that's also just a case of like, oh, well, we're, our staff likes this guy. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt at least early on until they prove to me that they can't evaluate quarterbacks. Um, but then also just seeing like his performance at the most recent Elite 11. Like if, if there's a kid that you're worried about not having great fundamental consistency, the Elite 11 really exposes that and shines a light on it. And so if you're going to go to an event where you are put up against other talented quarterbacks who have received good training and you're throwing on air and you're not being evaluated on any of your natural athletic gifts from a, from a movement standpoint, you're only being evaluated on your ability, take your drop, do the drill, get your platform and your feet right and deliver the ball in an accurate manner for him to go to an event like that and shine where if you would have asked me a month ago, I probably would have said that's probably an environment that he's not as built from a fundamental uh, foundational standpoint to thrive in. So clearly there's been a lot of improvement made for him um, a little bit more of a late bloomer, whereas it's pretty clear watching more that you have a kid who's probably been the same height and weight or not weight, but the same height that he's been and his body is really synced up and he's able to, um, there's just a, there's a level of confidence and athletic arrogance that exists with him that allows him to be extremely consistent. So uh, that's kind of my opinion on the on those two kids. And it seems to me 
uh, reading tea leaves and reading the excellent excellent coverage over there by uh, Justin Hopkins on ScoopDuck.com, that it, those would be the primary two guys uh, to pay attention to here in the near future. Thank you. That's a really good, excellent, in-depth um, breakdown of both of those. Is there, not to go in-depth on these, but just from a name standpoint, if our listeners are interested, you, is there one or two more guys that might be on the board that if they wanted to look at themselves, they could they should go look at? Yeah, again, I, I don't want to take credit for any of this and report it as if it's my own information. I, the guys over at Scoop Duck have done the best job of anybody on the Oregon beat of reporting the names. And I think Ricky Collins out of Louisiana is another one that's going to be evaluated. Obviously, the Jada, Jaden Rashada saga is still to be decided and ongoing. Based on the kind of the way that things have shaped up here from a, from a national landscape, because quarterback recruiting for people who maybe don't follow recruiting closely or are, are unfamiliar with recruiting in general it's it's like a it's like a big long line of dominoes like every school wants to take one every school really should if they're being responsible take at least one every year and there's an obvious pecking order as to who gets who and then people react accordingly as basically the tiers of college football programs dominoes knock over they don't obviously all knock over in unison. You don't have the first rated quarterback, then the second and the third all committing in a row in that kind of organized fashion. But you do see uh, uh, the behavior of teams and their recruiting departments and their staffs change and how they're targeting guys, where they're moving on, visits that are getting scheduled. It's kind of its own little market that is independent of everything else. And it's, it's, a, it's fun to watch. I think that we focused on the two guys that would – by my assessment, after watching the, these quarterback dominoes fall every year for the last decade, probably the two most obviously Oregon-connected guys. But as things change and adjust, we can always talk on, in the future on more guys. Yeah, but, yeah, great stuff. And obviously, you know some of those some of those major dominoes you're talking about, not from an Oregon perspective, but just nationwide. Arch Manning, obviously. Um, and then Eli Holstein, who just committed to Alabama, was one. And then, of course, Nico was one from a month or so ago. So the dominoes are starting to fall. And certainly we're at that time of year where where they start falling uh, more rapidly here as we get into June and July. Yeah, a lot of these kids, well, for there's a lot of incentive for them to make early decisions because they're the, they're kind of like the linchpin of the class, right? Like you want to get, if you're a quarterback and you're like supposed to be the leader of the team, leader of the program, leader of your recruiting class, you want to get settled at your new home and get on the trail recruiting guys to come help you. Luckily for Oregon, the way that they're recruiting skill positions right now, they're not going to need more if it's more or Johnson, if it's Johnson to be out there, just really like grinding the grindstone, trying to get kids interested to come play with them at Oregon. They've already basically finished up the, the skill positions in this class outside of tight end and one more running back and one more wide receiver. So They've got a they've got a luxury to be a little bit more patient than some other schools might be because there's certainly prospects that will cause a ripple effect at other positions. Um, so that's something to watch as well as these, as this continues to move forward. All right, thank you very much, and we will cover a different position group in our next episode. All right, moving along to the next segment, um, Pac-12. Pac-12, new commissioner George Klyavkov, been on the job for a little less than a year now, um, kind of making some waves uh, recently. He's announced that the effective immediately with the upcoming season, the the two participants in the Pac-12 title game will no longer be the North winner and the South winner. It will simply be the two teams with the highest winning percentage in the conference overall. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, 
I'm a little conflicted on it because I think if there is a time where this change is actually impactful, it's now. Um, and I understand it from both perspectives. So you have the perspective of people that don't like it, especially Oregon fans that don't like it because, well, the North is down. We're pretty clearly slated at the top of the North. Um, and so beating the schools that would immediately be in front of us on the schedule to secure a position in the Pac-12 title game um, might be the easier and less stressful outcome as opposed to having to measure schedules against two teams from the South um, now that USC is probably a little bit more relevant in the landscape. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's the best possible thing for the conference. Like, if, if, you're, if your goal is to get into the playoff, which I'm not a fan of getting into the playoff unless you're good enough to win a game, but if your goal is to get in, the, the best way to, to strengthen your resume as a conference is to have your two best teams battle it out. Um, over the course of the last 10 years, the, the lineup of teams that would have been playing in the Pac-12 title game is really not different in any years except for a couple of years in the early 2010s when Stanford and Oregon would have been playing a rematch game, in which case that would have helped Oregon in the BCS standings. 2012 is a good example of that. We beat Stanford in, in a rematch in the Pac-12 title game and the BCS computers likely would put us in a position to at least be in con contention again for the national title game. So uh, I think I think it's a healthy thing for the conference to do. It seems to be a national trend of where things are moving, where everyone is trying to get the competitive advantage from a scheduling standpoint. And so it's it's kind of the only option. Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of that, but I also have a couple of kind of counterpoints maybe. Um, I, the thing that caught me the most by surprise was that it was effective immediately. I, I, not that this was announced. I, I fully expected that they would announce this change would be effective a season from now when, in the 2023 season, and it would be effective in conjunction with the elimination of divisions and an and a overhauled scheduling model across the conference. So that, the part that those things were disconnected and, not, and didn't come together kind of caught me by surprise. Um, I, I agree for, from an Oregon perspective, it's, you know, it, looking at the short term in this current year, it's probably a, a little bit of a disadvantage for us. Cause I think, or for, you know, I think we were probably the odds on favorite in the North and now, you know, we, we have to battle some South teams too, to get into that game. I think the other, the other school that can look at this, you know, as maybe a disadvantage, you know, if you look at, if you, if you follow the line of thinking that the three favorites in this conference are USC, Utah, and Oregon, well, Utah plays both USC and Oregon, but Oregon and USC don't play each other. So that does potentially disadvantage Utah in getting into into that into that conference championship game and maybe gives a slight edge to to Oregon and USC not having to play each other. But that also if you put on your uh conspiracy theory hat, that also could be something that was going into the decision if the if the powers that be want to see USC and Oregon play in that game, maybe maybe they were looking at it this way. Well, there's no question that from like a viewership standpoint, that's the most valuable product that the, that the Pac-12 can field on the t on on that Friday in December or whenever the game gets played. Um, and I, and I, I think I think we generally see eye to eye on this. I don't think it's as big of an issue. I think there's some geopolitical stuff that caused them to make this change before and not in congruence with a scheduling announcement. <clears throat> Mostly, like you have Pac-12 media days coming up, you've got all the college football media. Uh, you have talking season right now, right? And so being able to claim some kind of win as a conference in regards to scheduling and uh, college football playoff competitiveness when when they were when when the alliance was the block on expansion last year, I think is something that was important to Kliakov 
and the Pac-12 powers that be going into going into the summer. Yeah, and and being being able to claim we were the first ones to make this move, right? Like, I, I totally agree with you there. I, I guess the one thing I'd argue is on the increasing your chances to to make the the top four invitational playoff. I actually could you could argue the other way, right? It, you know, the the recipe to get into the playoff right now has been win your conference and don't lose more than once. And so if you have a scenario where you have a one-loss team going into the Pac-12 title game and your choice is they could play a, a two-loss team that might have a 45% or a 50-50 chance of winning that game in the new format, but in the old format, if maybe they would have been playing a four-loss division winner who would be much less likely to beat them that actually this change could be in that scenario, lowering your odds of, of making the playoff because you're increasing the odds of an upset in the, in the title game. But I think you have to look at the bigger picture. And in that standpoint, I agree with you that this move is, is all positive and makes sense. Well, in the short term, like if, if, again, like let's let's put our tinfoil hats on and say that Oregon and USC are the teams that the conference would prefer to have in the title game. Well, it's pretty easy to see a path to both teams being in a best case scenario for the conference, assuming that that's their objective, eleven and one, right? And so, if you have two eleven and one teams, what what if we end up actually finally getting a year where all five conference title or all five t- conference title winners are legitimate playoff contenders? Well, if you have two eleven and one teams or a ten and two and eleven and one team uh, for for the Pac twelve, and otherwise you would have had. I don't know, like like in the example of an ACC that could happen this year where the Coastal is quite quite obviously the better division. If you have a team coming out of the ACC, basically North or the Atlantic, whatever they call the division, that is 8-4, and 7-5 and five because of their crossover games, and you're comparing relative resumes as a college football playoff committee trying to set the playoff, like obviously, a Pac-12 winner is going to have a substantial advantage, assuming that you were the, the goal was to keep the two best teams in the playoff at all costs, or in, in your in your conference title game at all costs. So again, that hasn't historically been an issue where we've had more than four teams that deserve to be in the playoff. But maybe that becomes an issue now. Maybe there's five or six teams from the Power Five and a and, or in a group of five because if you have two, if you have undefeated Bama and undefeated Georgia who never really play each other during the regular season, just due to the nature of a of the SEC scheduling model at current, like a one, whoever loses that game in a close game is probably getting in. And so if, if it, it's, it seems like a move to strengthen your strength of schedule relative to the ACC and the big 12, um, since the big 12 doesn't have divisions anyways, and the ACC has been the school, the, the league that's probably had the worst team up against Clemson in the, in the title game every year. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I guess the only last counterpoint I make to that is, it's a little whatever whatever they do there there there's risks and pros and cons on both sides right i mean they're hedging again uh, for all the things you just said and that makes sense but the counterpoint is if you have 11-1 and a 10 and 2 and the 10 and 2 wins you've just knocked yourself out um so both of those things can happen but it's all it's playing the odds and and playing the upside of the scenario you described which i think is the right play versus the downside of the current model so i I, I, I think it leads into our next segment segment too but with with how relatively bad the conference has been over the last five or six years and the inability to field a team that was legitimately good enough to be playing in the playoff. I mean, you can make your arguments about 2019, but they lost at Arizona state, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That 
like just just giving yourself a more valuable TV product by guaranteeing that you're not going to have like an eight and four team somehow squeaking into the title game because one division gets loaded for a year. It, like that that's a that's a revenue that's a revenue equalizer in a sense. Obviously, it's not going to equalize relative to the two big conferences, but it's gonna you, it's gonna guarantee that you don't end up with a crappy product on that Friday in December. Yeah, and and let's actually skip ahead to the revenue conversation then, and we can circle back on scheduling because I think you're absolutely right. It, it, regardless of whether there's a playoff on the line or not, or whether it it works out or not, like having your top two teams play in this game is going to be more valuable to your media partners than than the current setup. And I, and I we think, are about to enter negotiations. So, yeah, and I think that that's the linchpin of this. I think that with negotiations upcoming, the Pac-12 is trying to posture itself to give the most possible value to the potential bidders on the media rights. So let's segue into talking about media rights. Um, you know, John Wilner, who covers the Pac-12 out of the Bay Area for writing for the Mercury News, he published an article on this this week, um, and he covers the business side of the Pac-12, you know, better than anybody in in the conference and. He really did a nice breakdown of the the revenues, uh, uh, both over the last year, which really was the COVID year because it's fiscal year just ending, and then the and then kind of projecting out over the next four years what that revenue looks like. And the Pac-12 is coming in, you know, handily in the bottom uh, across all all five years of that landscape compared to the rest of the Power Five, with obviously the Big Ten and the SEC way out in front, and then the Big Twelve, ACC, and Pac-12. Significantly behind those, about twenty million a year behind per school, but tightly bunched with the Pac-12, about five million less than the the Big Twelve slash ACC. Thoughts yeah, on kind of where we're sitting now? Yeah, well, I think the obvious there's an obvious problem with 2020. We played the least games by a wide margin relative to the other Power Five schools, but with the ACC deal locked in through 2036, like that's, I mean, there might be some annual growth on a, on a small level, but it's not going to be the PAC 12 deal is extremely outdated at this point. So I think it's pretty clear with, with the sec move for Oklahoma and Texas that the, and, and the, in the, the grabbing of a couple of AAC schools to kind of try to fill that void and create a more valuable product. To me, that's threefold. So it, from a, from a, again, geopolitical climate standpoint, it really seems that, the Big 12 was just as much trying to weaken the ACC as they were trying to add quality programs because the AAC seems to be their most logical TV, TV competition at this stage post-Oklahoma and Texas. So they're trying to basically steal the most advanced brands from that conference in an effort to kind of move that value over to the Big 12 for their new negotiation. I mean, there's no question. I don't think you'd find an argument from anybody reputable that the Big 12 is going to even be in contention for third place once the new TV deals are renegotiated here in the next three or four years. So the the question is, is where not really that the Pac-12 was in last because that's kind of disingenuous over the scale of, of the future when you consider that we're up for renegotiation and the ACC isn't and the Big 12 has lost their two most valuable brands by a wide, wide, wide margin. But yeah. how big is the gap going to be once the deal is renegotiated between the Big 10 the SEC and the Pac-12, because I fully expect that the Pac-12 will be a strong number three, but is that a $30 million a year gap per school, or is that a 40 or $50 million gap? And how much more is the Pac-12 going to have than the ACC, given the fact that their deal is locked in through 2036? No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, I mean, it's evident. We're in, we're in a hole right now, and we're in a hole for a couple more years, and we just have to survive that. Uh, I think the Pac-12... 
to me, I agree with you. I think we'll be we'll be in the number three spot after this next round of negotiations uh, takes place across the Big Twelve and, and Pac twelve both, and the Big Tens obviously are coming to a conclusion. So you know, the Big Ten and the SEC are going to be significantly ahead. I think the Pac twelve will be in the third spot. The question is, is it you know slightly above the ACC? You know, substantially above the ACC. And to your point, you know what? How big is that gap? As I fully expect the gap from the Big Ten and the SEC to the Pac-12 to be substantially larger than the gap from the Pac-12 to the A to the Big Twelve to the AC or to the ACC and then to the Big Twelve. Like I think those three will be like much all, all much closer to each other than the Big Ten and SEC will be to any of them. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that. We're going to see, I mean, with, with Wilner's projections, even at current, there's going to be a couple hundred million dollar deficit for the Pac-12 relative to the Big Ten and the SEC. I think it was $120 million. Yeah. Um, and that's at current. And though they're, they're getting new deals too. And their rights have probably um, been accelerated in, in appreciation over the course of the last decade, more so than the Pac-12 with how poorly the conference performed, how poorly the conference has been managed. And just the fact that they have better regional fan bases, more valuable brands to begin with. And you have the SEC, again, kind of sucking up all the air in the room by adding Texas and Oklahoma. I'm not sure that the Pac-12, I mean, I, I don't know if we want to get into this rabbit hole, but will will the Pac-12 exist in its current state for Klyakov to negotiate this deal? Because it's pretty clear at this stage, based on the reporting of Pete Thamel and Bruce Feldman, that the door is at least cracked for USC to look around at either going independent or, or just flat out leaving for the Big Ten, um, and, and so we'll see as the as the grant of rights comes closer to expiring, um, how those talks mature and if Kliakov can even get USC to stay at the table. Yeah, and if they do stay at the table, like at the very least, you would expect they're probably going to be leveraging those options uh, to get a bigger than equal share of the Pac-12 pie. And you know, what, is their goal to get a bigger than equal share of the Pac-12 pie? Is their goal to do something else? And and will the uh, the rest of the Pac-12 agree to that? And what does that mean for future ramifications? Because that was the Texas model, right? Like Texas got a bigger share of the pie. But that also made that the Big Twelve like fundamentally and foundationally unstable for the long term. Yeah, well, and if you're if you're USC, like just looking at it from their perspective, even even if let's say that they get like one and a half shares of the new Pac-12 TV deal, just for an example, I have no idea if that's what it would be or if that's even realistic. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that still the same as what they would get in the Big Ten? I would argue it's probably not. And if that's yeah, the case, I mean, why would you not just hit your wagon to the more valuable TV product and, and and have your ship like I don't know. It just it just seems it seems like an uphill battle. And I know um Klyakov has been on the job for just under a year now at this point, uh or under a year now at this point, but it it seems that the climate for for the TV deals and for realignment is such that regardless of how good or competent he is, he might not have a lot of say. Like if Fox comes goes to the Big Ten and says, hey, if you can if you can poach three or f- the three or four best brands from the Pac twelve to come over, we'll give you all of this. Because all it, it probably saves the bit or Fox money in the long term and it increases the value of their most valuable product, which is the Big Ten. 
Like, the, does Fox really want to subsidize, or does Fox want to have to split their bidding between two conferences when they could just basically go all in on an expanded Big Ten? Uh, you you just hit the nail on the head, right? I, I've been thinking about this in the standpoint of, or I've been convincing people in the standpoint of, look, if you bring the four biggest brands from the Pac-12 over to the Big Ten, the pie is growing more than the than the splits are happening. So it's still a net gain for all the schools that are still there, right? Like, yeah. which is the argument for the people who wanted the, the Pac-12 to poach the Big 12 was it would actually, like any, adding any of the non-Oklahoma, Texas schools would actually have reduced the per school revenue for the Pac-12. So it was nonsensical, but that's not the case. If USC, Oregon, and a couple other brands go to the Big 10, the pie will grow more than the shares are being diluted. Now, the thing you you just said, though, that's super interesting is if that happens, then Fox can just basically say, we're not even interested in the leftover parts of the Pac-12, and they'll be actually paying less total money mm-hmm. on, on, the, on the Big Ten deal alone, even an expanded Big Ten deal alone, than they would have been paying on the, on the Big Ten and Pac-12 deals combined. Possibly, yeah, because they wouldn't be essentially paying for invaluable product in the case of like Oregon State and Washington State and Cal. Like they they wouldn't have to they wouldn't have to bear that burden um in order to negotiate for for a large portion of two separate Power Five conferences deals. And again, yeah. this ultimately this is not the Big Ten versus the SEC. It's not USC versus the Pac twelve. This is Fox versus ESPN. Like you have two Titan media companies going head to head, trying to consolidate as much brand power and uh, media value on their side of the aisle as possible. And so I, I think that it's it's Fox that's driving the boat on this. I don't like as much as it is USC because they've got the most leverage. They're the most valuable brand in the Pac-12. They're also a private school with no affiliation to the UC system. Like there's a lot of things working in USC's favor that give it flexibility and leverage. But ultimately, the person, the people with all the power is Fox. Absolutely, because Fox Fox is looking at what ESPN did. Right, ESPN obviously owns the ACC rights. Uh, they have they have sole proprietorship of the SEC rights now, and then they just went and poached the two most valuable brands from the from the uh, Big Twelve, and then they also are consolidating that part of the re- that part of the country from a regional standpoint with Texas and Oklahoma now joining the SEC footprint. If you're Fox, you could be coast to coast. You could have LA and New York City. Yeah, I understand that that TV rights are negotiated a little bit differently in the streaming age than they were in the the cable antenna age. But you would still be basically monopolizing the West Coast by getting the only brands worth a dang out here um, and adding them to your portfolio that gives you a coast-to-coast market. Uh, absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. So it, it's going to be fascinating to watch this unfold over the next 6 to six to 12 to 18 months. Uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be covering it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that uh, probably my favorite topic to talk about at Current just because how volatile it is and I think it's something that's kind of getting missed by a lot of the local prognosticators, whether it's Oregon or Pac-12 specific. Like, I think that this is something that is, I, I don't know. I just, the, from a logical standpoint, from a financial standpoint, if you want to know what's making the decision, follow the dollars. It doesn't seem likely that the Pac-12 is going to be operating as the Pac-12 when it comes time to sign this new TV deal, unless, unless Klyakov works some crazy magic and is able to uncover some unseen market of streaming money um, to kind of make up the difference between what the Big Twelve, Big Ten could possibly offer the most, the most valuable brands. 
uh, kind of going back to like talking about the conference title game. I know you had mentioned scheduling. What, like, what's your opinion? So if the if if none of that stuff happens and in the Pac-12 stabilizes in some sort and um, the the twelve teams that are currently in the conference are in the conference for the dura- for the duration of the next TV deal. What are some scheduling models that you think would be best for the conference going forward? So I think there's two obvious ones, um, and then I have a wild harebrained idea that I I'm kind of starting to really like, but it's probably not a realistic one. But so we'll start with the two. Um, you know, and and many people will pine on this. I actually I actually started tweeting this at at the Pac-12 and and you know, some of the media members that cover the Pac-12, like the day, like probably within 20 minutes of the, the title game change being announced. But the obvious answer is pods for the Pac-12. You've got the Northwest pod, you get the California pod, and you got the Mountain Arizona pod. The teams in the pod all play each other, so that's three games a year. And then you rotate through the, you know, you play three of the four teams in each of the other two pods every year. Uh, and it sets up for an eight-year scheduling rotation where you you essentially play every team not in your pod six years out of eight. So what that would mean for Oregon and the other North schools is in an eight-year cycle, you would play Cal and Stanford six times instead of the current eight, and you'd play USC and UCLA six times instead of the current four. Um, and what it means for the Mountain and Arizona schools is they would they would play USC and UCLA two times less over that same eight-year cycle, but they would play the Northern California schools two times more. It's really not that significant of a departure from the current rotation. It's it's basically one game per year per school different um, than the current model. But what it does is it actually eliminates the, uh, the kind of the unbalanced scheduling we have now due to the California compromise where all the California schools get to play each other every year. But because they're split in the two divisions, uh, that creates a, a situation where the, all the schools in the Northwest play play the Mountain and Arizona schools more often than they play the Southern California schools, um, and so that way it would really clean that up, which is nice. Yeah, and I've seen some some models for other leagues where instead of doing like pods based on region, they're doing three permanent rivals. But with the way that the Pac-12 has worked and been set up structurally all the way going back to the Pac-8, like the the way teams have been added, it pods make the most sense because everybody's rivals are the same. Like it's your, you have your California schools, you got your Northwest schools and you have your mountain and Arizona schools. I think that that model is pretty clearly the obvious answer for the PAC 12. Um, it, a lot, it removes a lot of inequity in the ability and the frequency of playing in Southern California um, without screwing over the rivalries for the California schools um, that they, that they, that they maintain on a yearly basis. Yeah, absolutely. That I mean that the the permanent rivalry model is the other one that I that I referenced is, you know, you play you play the same three schools every year, but it's year three are different than my three are different than my three, so it's not a pod situation. And I, again, I think you nailed it. Like that doesn't really make as much sense in the Pac-12 as the pods um given all the things you just mentioned. Can I you want to hear my harebrained idea? Uh, can I guess what it is? Um, yeah, first of all, though, let me circle back because I do think it's important to note there's a lot of people when this gets posted around, like the Pac-12 needs to go to eight games, the Pac-12 needs to go to eight conference games. That is not happening. It's a non-starter. The, it, the money loss from this conference dropping from nine conference games to eight conference games and the new TV schedule is, is a complete non-starter. So in the only scenario where that was going to happen was if the Big Ten also dropped from nine to eight and then there was a these cross-conference matches between the Big Ten and the Pac-12. Well, the Big Ten and Fox decided 
it's in their best interest to stay at nine Big Ten games. So that kills any thought of going to eight. So if listeners out there are entertaining that idea, like I understand, you know, fans like to pontificate about that stuff and the unfairness of other conferences playing less conference games. And all of those are, are fun arguments and valid arguments in some cases, but it's just it's just not reality from a money standpoint. It's nine, it's going to be nine. But yes, please guess what my what my model is. Well, now I have two things. So first thing is, I not only is that 100% correct, and it was the right financial decision for the Big Ten to make from a TV property standpoint, it also gives them more leverage over USC in a negotiation now. Because if there was some kind of like cross-conference scheduling agreement that was made, they the, the value might have been less for the Big for the Big Ten in like as yeah. a proposition to USC. So um, yeah, so I think that your scheduling model is going to involve permanent rivalries that aren't actually rivalries that would put the most popular and TV driven brands up against each other on a yearly basis to maximize revenue. Am I right or wrong? Um, that wasn't exactly the model I'm talking about, but the model I'm talking about could be adapted to, to that, to include that, I guess I would say. Okay. Let's hear it. Okay. So Back when I thought the, the the alliance thing might result in the Pac-12 dropping to eight games, I I scheduled I scenarioed out like what would an eight game conference schedule look like? What would that model look like? And I came up with like eleven different models that weren't like funny farm silly, right? Um, and I walked through them all, and I landed on the one that I thought made the most sense for an eight game conference schedule, which was two permanent rivals. Um, so that 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 takes two out of the eleven other teams, and then the other nine, you would play six out of those nine on a rotation. And the beauty of that is it gives you a complete rotation in a six-year cycle, which is current, which matches the current six-year cycle that we have. So you rotate through the conference very frequently. You have two permanent rivals. In the case I I mapped it out, like thinking traditional rivalries, right? For Oregon, it would be Washington and Oregon State, no doubt. Um, you know, for for Washington, it would be Oregon and Washington State. Um, and, you know, for USC, it would be Stanford and UCLA and they would they, they would drop the Cal game every year and vice versa. So that so I, I've kind of come back to adopting that idea. So in, an, in, the, in a schedule where you're playing top two in the conference title game and you're playing a, a, a nine game conference schedule, what if you your first eight games were two permanent rivals plus the six team rotation I just described? And then the last week of the season, you play one versus four, two versus three, and then mix up, you know, five through 12, however you want, avoid, avoid rematches, whatever. And then essentially you've created a semifinals. The winners go to the, to the conference championship game. No, I totally get it. I just, I don't see it happening. I don't either. It's like I said, <laughs> it's like, I, I like it though. Like it's, I, I like it. I like it. I just, I think that. That might provide some level of uncertainty from a TV value standpoint. Whereas if you just said, "Hey, like, like we used to like give in equity to the California schools to guarantee these rivalries," well, guess what? Oregon and USC are gonna play each other home and home every year. Like, it's an inequity, but we are we're doing it in an order to create better value for the conference. Like, to me, that would make more sense because, like, in a given year, yeah, maybe. Maybe you end up with the four best brands as your four top teams. It doesn't necessarily mean that your TV product is more valuable. That you can you can't guarantee that your TV product is more valuable at the negotiating table with that model, as opposed to just saying, "Hey, by the way, 
here's our four from a TV standpoint, from a rating standpoint. Here's the four best teams we've got. They're going to play every year. Oh no, you're you're totally right. I I, I mean, to me, I, as I said, I was kind of putting on like my fan hat and saying. If I was the commissioner in some league where, you know, it's 12 nameless, faceless teams that, that you know, are all, all wear white jerseys, this would be a really cool concept to put together. But uh. we don't live in that reality. And I, I full, I'm fully aware of that. And I think you're absolutely right. And that's a good twist on this that I don't think anyone's talking about, you know, at, at the conference level of, you know, at least the media of the idea of let's put those let's put Oregon versus USC every year. Let's put, you know, like you said, whatever the, whatever the top matchups are, that's going to generate the most revenue to the TV partners. And, and if it's unfair to, you know, some of the teams in the conference, some of the schools in the conference that don't generate eyeballs, eh, too bad. Yeah. But you know what? They're getting subsidized in this deal anyway. So exactly. Exactly. Why should (laughs) you give them an equal say? And and not only are they getting subsidized, but they're going to benefit from a model like that because they don't. They're going to lose a game against one of the better teams in the conference every year. Facts. Like they're like, like it's going to be removed from the schedule. Not like they're going to lose it on the field. Like they, it will not be on the schedule. So, and again, I understand like everybody wants to play in LA and everyone wants to play in LA and even amount. But again, if 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 you're working from a deficit, you're gonna. Ha- I think that Kliakov and company are gonna have to get creative in terms of both the partners that they bring to the table to negotiate, but also that the way that the the product is organized to maximize. So that uh, one more thing on this, and then I think we need to move on to our next topic. But I think that actually speaks to a greater kind of fundamental question about the future of this conference, because the history of this conference has been all about congeniality and equality and. Like there's no playing favorites. Every you know we're 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 all gonna like play along nicely and and you know sacrifice for the greater good. And I think the reality is, as you move forward, you have to start looking at things like like what you just mentioned, right? Like we may have the conference may have to decide, like yeah, we're gonna play to our we're gonna play to our best brands because it's in the best interest of the conference as a whole and keeping it together. And oh by the way. I'm sorry you don't like it, Oregon State or Washington State, but you, you know we can get someone else to take your spot. That would be loved to be here under those terms. Yeah, and, and, and that's I, a little bit like how some of the other conferences treat their best brands, and the Pac-12 hasn't historically. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100. percent And I think that that's it's almost a foregone conclusion that they're going to have to operate in that way because the power brokers at at USC and Oregon. Like they're they're the only ones that are are subsidizing the gap right now. Like what I mean by that is like they're the schools that are spending booster dollars to make up for the gap in TV revenue to stay competitive nationally from a salary standpoint, from an operations budget standpoint. Like they're the only schools that are invested, and so those people that are writing those checks don't want to subsidize the gap indefinitely. So I just I just think that there's been a shift in the cl- in the climate in the geography of the way that the, that the that these things are going to be done. Like there's just, there's no way, there's no way to continue on this trend where we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya as a deficit grows from 10 to 20% a year to 50 to 60% a year. Yeah. I mean, right now we're at, I mean, we're all, we're way over 20, 10% already. I mean, we're, yeah, we're, we're closer 30, to 20. Yeah. Well, I think we're higher than that even, but yeah, yeah. Your, your point spot on. So let's move on to, to do something a little fun now. Um, you know, earlier this week, over-unders came out for the Pac-12 and around the country for win totals. That's always a fun game to to go through those and say who's going to be over, who's going to be under. 
And uh, I thought, why not? Let's kick it off. We'll go through the whole Pac-12, and then we'll add some national teams that uh, that are interesting. That you know, people are probably interested in over unders there. So I'm going to feed these up to you, QB. I'll let you get first crack at each of them, and then I'll I'll say whether I agree or take the opposite side. And and maybe you know, if we have enough opposites, we'll come back and visit this at the end of the year and see who uh, who is better. Yeah, I like that. Let's do it. All right. So th- this is from uh, Bet Online. Yeah, so over-unders for the Pac-12. So they've got USC on top, 9.5. So you like the over or you like the under? So I got the schedules here. I think USC is by far the hard. Like, I would not put money on this on this number. Um, I think that they're the hardest team to gauge. Like, they've had the most turnover from a staff standpoint. They've had the most roster turnover um, from a transfer-in, transfer-out standpoint. A lot of the problems that I would typically assign to a team in year one of a culture change and, and transition might not be as big a problems with the way that the rules have changed in terms of roster management over the last couple of years. So the way I look at their schedule, I have it pulled up right here, is you have three games to me that seem like they're, they're 50-50 games. You got Utah, Notre Dame, and UCLA. Um they would have to lose all three of those games to be under the nine and a half. But do you trust USC at this stage in the program rebuild to win all the games they're supposed to win in a conference that traditionally has cannibalized itself? So I, I would probably, I would probably, I wouldn't touch this if I was putting real money on it. I'll probably take the over and say 10 and two, but nine and three or even eight and four would not surprise me in the least bit. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm going to say nine nine and three, so I'm going to take the under. So we'll go opposite there. But I, yeah, I'm with you. Like I, this could be ten and two, and I wouldn't blink an eye. So I'm not touching it either. Yeah. Um, all right. Next up, we'll move on. Uh, we got three teams. We'll start with Oregon. Eight point five. Oregon. So uh, Homer take. I'm going to take the over. Uh, the reason I'm taking the over is really how the schedule sets up from a home and away standpoint. Oregon has lost one home game since 2018 and it was in 2018 to Stanford in a game that they actively threw away in the, in the, in the, in the second half. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and assume that with all of Oregon's games, toughest games outside of the Georgia home opener or the neutral quote unquote neutral side opener in Atlanta um, being at home, that they're going to be able to continue to, to play well in Autzen um, and, and, and leverage the crowd as an advantage. So I'll, I'm going to take the over. I think 10-2 and two is possible. Um, if they beat Georgia, all bets are off. Uh, I don't think that that's the most likely outcome, but I, I think 9-3 and three seems to be a pretty high pro- probability outcome for Oregon. Yeah, I've got their range, you know, their win total range from 8 to 10. Um, and so, you know, if I play play the odds if nothing else, and I'm taking I'm taking the over, but I like I like nine and three for sure. I, this was one that popped out at me. It's not not the easiest one on the board to read, but I felt like, man, if Oregon is eight and four, I, that would really shock me to be honest. Uh, so I'm taking the over as well. Um, yeah, I like Oregon at nine or better. I mean, uh, if Oregon is two and one at the end of the non-conference, I think you have a very good chance of hitting over. Yeah, yeah, because then you just need you know seven and two, and that's yeah. And that seems, considering you miss USC and your hardest Pac-12 games are at home, with the two toughest road games being Washington State and Arizona, Arizona, who's a two-and-a-half win total team, and Washington State, who is a five-and-a-half win total team, I think that the odds are pretty good in Oregon's favor here. Agreed. 
Also at 8.5 from the South, UCLA. This is a weird one for me. And I, I want to get I want to get your take on it first because I think I'm going to have a little bit of a controversial take here. Okay, um, so I'm going to take the under, but not by much. I've got them at eight and four. Uh, you know, just like last year, it is interesting to me that they're coming out at, at you know tied for second best odds at, at eight and at eight point five. But most of the people talking about this conference have them pegged as like a different you know distant fourth or fifth in the running. So. There's a little bit of a disconnect, you know, at least between the betting odds and the and the you know the talking heads. Um, I, I, UCLA, I mean, yeah, I got them under, but it, it's close. So I have them under as well. I, but I think it depends on how you feel about the the Bay Area schools, because I think they'll be three they'll be three and zero um, in the non conference, and obviously they play a South schedule with crossover games against. Oregon and Washington. So I think that your over under here is going to largely depend on how good you think Washington's going to be. Cause I, I, I think that the obvious losses are, well, not obvious loss. If I was going to bet on it, the obvious losses are Oregon, um, USC and uh, Utah. And so do do you, one, do you, do you trust UCLA after all the losses and the departures in the portal um, and to the draft last year to, to handle their business against the teams that would be below them? Or do you think that they're going to drop one to a team that they shouldn't lose to, and they're going to lose a 50, 50 game to a team? Like I, I just, I don't see the 50, 50 games on the schedule. I see three losses and then I see a team, a bunch of teams they should beat. Yeah. The problem is I don't trust, I don't trust chip. I don't trust UCLA. I don't trust their personnel. Um, the way that they've managed that roster to give that kind of output. So I'm taking the under on UCLA. Agreed. I think they'll drop two more than they should. Also at 8.5, uh, Utah defending Pac-12 champions. Um, I would for sure take the over on that. It, it might actually just come down to that Florida game, the opener in Gainesville. Um, but they're favored in that game on the road at current, or at least they were last time I checked. But they—they're the only—they do play both. They play Oregon on the road, and they play, but they play SC at home. So if they split Oregon SC, they're—they're they're hitting the over, even if they lose to even if they lose to Florida. If they beat Florida, I don't—I don't really see a way that they don't hit the over. Yeah, I—I I totally agree with that. I think yeah, they do have to play both of those teams, but um, they really—I mean. In, if they go two and one, even if they lose the Florida game and go two and one, they only have to go seven and two in conference. And you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of a lot of games that I feel like aren't really going to be close with them and and in the conference. So, I mean, you know, you got Colorado, you got Stanford, you got uh, Washington. You know, maybe not, maybe not that one. You got Beavers, you got Arizona State. Like, there's a there's a lot of like, you know, nothing's an automatic W, but there's a lot of things I'd consider pretty close to an automatic double on their schedule. So, I mean, I, I'm I'm making my claims based on assuming quarterback health for all these teams. Like, of it's course, bound to happen. Someone's going to get hurt, and it's going to we're going to look stupid here at the end of the year. But if Cameron Rising's healthy with the way that that roster is constructed, the familiarity and the consistency on both with both schemes uh, with Scally and Ludwig, I just I don't see Utah losing the teams that they shouldn't lose to. Like that, their their talent has improved. They have the best quarterback that they've had since Whittingham has been the head coach. And they, 
I don't know. They just have so much momentum coming into the season. I'd be really surprised with the culture that they have at Utah if they un- underperformed expectations. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I've got them at. I've got them with you know eight. Yeah, I got them with eight wins that I think are pretty handy. So then they only really need to win win one of the other four to to pop over. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, dropping off. This one might be a surprise to some people, but uh, Washington seven point five comes in next. Yeah. Um... This is a tough one because I genuinely looking at their schedule, I think eight and four is the most likely outcome. I think that they underperformed their talent level last year, but the talent level is also starting to drop off after a couple of recruiting classes that were less than desirable. Um, so I would, I would probably take the over and say eight and four, but any number of outcomes wouldn't surprise me. Whenever you have a, a transition year, the culture was pretty clearly broken by the end of last year. Um, like what happens when that team faces adversity? They play Michigan State at home early, but Michigan State's a team that I think is pretty criminally overrated coming into the year. So like if they if they manage to win that game, I think they hit the over. Um, there's some Pac-12 matchups in here that I think are difficult, like going on the road to Oregon, going on the road to UCLA. Um, I think they probably split the Arizona schools, but they they miss Utah and USC. So who on this pretty soft schedule is going to punish them for any? talent shortcomings because against most of these teams they're still going to be playing from an advantage on that front so i i I like kalen DeBoer. i think he's a really good coach i'm going to take the over and say eight and four yeah i'm also going to take the over on this one like you referenced i mean they have the the softest schedule in the conference they they miss two of the top three teams they miss they miss uh you know both utah and usc they also have kent state and portland state out of conference so there's a you know there's a there's a lot of ground to be had on this conf, on this schedule for them and and i i kind of pin their their range of wins between six at the low end and nine at the high end i think seven or eight is much more likely than six or nine and but just given the the charmin softness of the schedule i'm going to say they go eight and four and i'll have them on the over yeah yeah i know i think that's a good i think we're about to hit under city for a while here though yeah, it's actually a pretty good gap here. So Washington was at seven and a half. The next one up is Arizona State at five and a half. And I'm hammering the under on this one. Yeah, no, there's no way. Like the NAU game, they'll win. Um, they go on the road to Oklahoma State. I don't see them winning that game under any circumstance given. I mean, basically, and I, I mean this with the utmost respect, but every player returning with redeemable traits is somewhere else. Like they've all left. They've all gone somewhere else. But Elijah Badger being like kind of the lone, the last cowboy standing. Um, they they just got a commitment from Emory Jones out of the transfer portal, the the Florida quarterback. I think he makes them better. But the problem is, is I think he's kind of fighting on an island by himself here. So the fact that they play, they miss they miss Oregon, which is good. Um, I think that they could start off two and three with wins over NAU um, and Eastern Michigan. And then they have Utah, SC, and Washington in a row. I think that in order for Washington to hit the over, that's a game that, that Washington needs to win. Um, and so I'm going to – I just predict them if they hit the over. I don't see a way that Arizona State's any better than two or four going – two and four going into their bye week, which down the stretch um, with the with just the pure volume of road games for their last six on the road, I don't see how they hit this over. Yeah, I've got their win expectancy – you know, their win range in between three and five, which are all, all three of those outcomes are under the over. So I'm going to take the under on that one. Excellent. We're on the same page. 
Cal at five and a half wins. I, I'm, this is one that I've seen a super wide variety of opinions on. I'm interested to hear what you think about the Bay Area team. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I I I haven't haven't followed their off season much, um, so I'm a little I'm a little in the dark there. So I'm really just basing it on what I've seen out of Cal, you know, under the Justin Wilcox era. You know, some of the you know obviously losing Garbers. You know, some of those kind of big name moves. And then just other other than that, just looking at the schedule. I mean, they play Notre Dame, so that's not helpful. Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, I, I'm probably going under, but that's probably one I wouldn't bet either. This is a weird. It's a. I don't know how to predict them this year. I do not trust that offense at all. I'm I'm very low on both Bay Area teams going into this year. Um, I think that they finally managed to fix their their biggest structural issue on defense, which is recruiting the nose tackle position. They finally have some bodies like Brett Johnson. Their defensive end's a really good player. He's not going to have to play nose tackle anymore. Um, I just the, the the some of the transfers that they took in raised serious questions about the overall talent level on the team for me. Like Plummer, the Purdue transfer at quarterback. Like if he's the guy, I. I it, it, given what what they've displayed from a philosophical standpoint on offense, I have a really hard time taking the over here. I'm I'm going to take the all foreshadowing my under on on the Stanford. I I just don't have I have zero, and they have a sneaky hard out of conference schedule. This isn't a schedule that anybody east of the Rockies would look at and be like, oh, that's a that's a tough out of conference schedule. You have Montana State, which is one of the best FCS programs in the country right now. You have Fresno State with Jeff Tedford now at the helm. There's going to be a lot of continuity there, and they have. Probably the best quarterback outside of Caleb Williams and Cam Rising on the on the Beaver schedule with Jake Hayner, and then you've got a, a plucky Boise State program. So, to me, this if they are worse than two and one coming out of the non-conference, this is a hard under. But if they can manage to be three and zero, oh, it's an over. I, I think that they'll I think they'll go about five hundred in Pac-12 play. I think there's obvious losses. Um, to SC, Utah, and Oregon. I think they're better than both the Bay Area teams. I think they're better than Arizona State. Um, and I think that they can be competitive with Washington and Washington State. Um, I also think they're better than Colorado. So to me, I, this is going to be a pretty clear under. Like, it, I'm, going, I'm, going with the, I'm going with the over. I think they get to six. But if they're not two and one or three and other, I don't, I don't see a way that they get to six. Yeah, this is a tough one too. Like that, like you said, that that out of conference is is sneaky good. I mean, Boise and Fresno both like that's, and then you add, like you said, Montana State is FCS is, ah, uh, you know they've 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 had some given some people troubles. Um, man, I just I'm I really don't know where to, I'm kind of sitting right on five point five to be honest. So I'm kind of in the five or six range, but I could easily see them only winning four. Or, or going to seven. Like, it, it's, it's a tough one. Let me give you my path to six. Okay. okay. So let's say that they go two and one in the non conference. Yep. They, they split the uh, mountain schools. So they beat Colorado. They lose to Utah, gets them to three. They split the Bay Area schools. That gets them to four. And then they have to beat, they have to beat Colorado. Or I apologize. I already had Colorado in there. Shoot. Yeah. I don't know how they get to six. They have to go three and zero in the non-conference. One, two, three, four. ASU. I think they can. I think they're a better football team than ASU at that point in the year. Like ASU might be completely checked out. That's like that's week twelve. Um, 
they might not have a head coach. So if they can split the Bay Area schools, beat ASU and Colorado, and then go two and one, that puts them at five. So they really need to go three and zero in the non-conference, in my opinion, to hit six. So I the other the other path I had to six is two and one in the non-con. Everything else you just said, but beating both the Bay Area schools. Yeah, I could I could see that as a as a possibility. Um, but I don't know that I trust them. If they would have gotten JT Daniels, I would have been hammering this over. But I don't trust Chance Nolan to throw the ball. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the over. I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt. But this is one I'm probably gonna regret. Um, I, well, if I'm regretting this, I'll be regretting it before the end of September. I'm gonna take the under just to be opposite you. That's fair. Because I got nothing else to base it on at this point. All right, Wazoo. Also five, five, and a half. five and a half wins for Wazoo. I think this isn't over. I, I understand that they do play the two toughest teams in the South preseason. Um, but I think that they're going to have a little bit of that Western Kentucky magic going for them in the sense that they bring over uh, Cam Ward and the offensive coordinator from Incarnate Ward. So they, they have, or Incarnate Word. Um, so they have, they have a lot of, they have scheme continuity at the quarterback and offensive coordinator position, despite the fact that they're both new, which I think is going to result in a quicker turnaround. Tough game on the road in Madison week two against Wisconsin. I don't see them winning that game. Um, but Colorado, Idaho State, two very winnable games. I think that this is a team that I would almost bet on to beat both Bay Area schools. Um, and then they play both Arizona schools too. So I, I think this is a pretty clear over. And I would not be surprised if they, they stepped up and plucked somebody off that they wouldn't be picked to beat preseason. Yeah, I'm with you on this. I've got their range between six and eight, which again, all three of those outcomes are in the over. So I'm I'm pretty pretty solid in the over camp on them. I'm at six without even like factoring for a rivalry game at home in Pullman against Washington to end the year. Yeah, exactly. So I, I feel pretty comfortable with the over here, especially if they if they can keep um, Cameron Ward in one piece. I think that Washington State's a scary team to play on a week to week basis in the Pac-12. Stanford four and a half. Just give me all the under. Give me all of it. <laughs> It's Stanford's funny because like I, there's people like you and I'm kind of leaning more that direction. But then I, you know, there's like, it's every year. It feels like the, this is the year Stanford gets back. It feels like I've been hearing that every year for like four years now. So let me give you my <laughs> I, argument. I, I hear it. <laughs> I think Tanner McKee, the top half of the league quarterback. Definitely. I think, I think he's very good. I actually think that they have some pretty good players at the skill positions, especially at receiver. Um, I don't know that they have a true, like, real explosive player out there. But even with the loss of Austin Jones, I think between Emmett Smith Jr. and Casey Phillikins, they'll be fine at running back. I have zero faith in their defense. Zero. I can't. The fact that he that that Taylor is still employed by Stanford at this stage tells me that Stanford is just they don't care. Like they've been horrible. They finally recruited a little better in this class, but it's not going to be making. You're not going to be seeing those dividends on the field early enough in this season to make a difference. I mean, you have SC, you have Utah, you have BYU, and you have Notre Dame on top of your on top of your Pac-12 North schedule. I just on talent alone, I'd probably have them at fifth in the Pac-12 North, maybe sixth. And they have those four games in the out of conference and crossover. Yeah, g- give me give me all of the under on Stanford. I don't I don't see more than three wins here. Yeah, I I'm going through there's no way I can find five wins, and I struggle to get to four. Uh, obviously, Colgate, you know, Arizona State, 
then what? You, you the rivalry game in Cal maybe gets you to three. Then you got to beat Washington or Oregon State to get to four. I geez, that's tough. <laughs> yeah, I see three. I'm on the under. I see three, and I could. I don't. I don't see David Shaw's heat ever get or seat ever getting hot because I think that they've had some structural disadvantages on the recruiting trail that have manifested over the last few years. But they need to keep recruiting well because right now they're just at a talent deficient state. So, yeah, give me the under on Stanford. All right, two more to go. We got Colorado at three and a half. Give me the under. Again, I the, the these bottom three to me are the easiest bets. I actually put a hundred dollars on each of these lines as soon as they came out. Um. Colorado, to me, is the worst team in the conference by a pretty wide margin, which is saying something because I'm not high on Stanford. Colorado doesn't have as hard of a schedule as, as Stanford, but their non-conference relative to what they are is sneaky difficult. TCU, which should be improved this year. Air Force, which like playing a good triple option team at any point is a pain in the you-know-what, but playing them like week two after playing like, an air, a Sunny Dykes air raid team at TCU is going to be a really, really stark contrast. And then they have to go to Minnesota, um, which to me is just a, like a, a for sure loss. I don't. I would almost bet on Colorado to start zero and three. And with the hire of Mike Sanford, offensive coordinator, I completely and fundamentally disagree with the direction of their offense philosophically. I think that that was a horrible hire. Um, I'm not one to really usually land blast coaching hires like that. I just think to me that's a John Donovan level bad offensive coordinator hire. Um, and then you lost all of your good players to the portal. Like anybody with any redeeming traits or quality transferred to another Pac-12 school. Both starting corners, Mecky uh, Blackman and um, our guy uh, Christian Gonzalez left to USC and Oregon respectively at corner, which is going to be a problem in a, in a, in a South that is going to have a lot of teams that are going to try to air it out, I think, this year. And they also lost um, the running back uh, to Michigan State and the receiver to USC, Brendan Rice. So I, I just, I don't see a lot of like pluses for this team. I see a really difficult out of conference and I see a, a tough, a tough crossover schedule um, going to Washington and then playing us at home. Yeah. I go through their conference schedule and I count nine losses. Uh, yeah. You know, you could say, okay, you know, upsets happen. They're going to pick, pick one off, but assuming they go one and two and at best in non-conference, they need to pick up three conference games and I just don't see any path. So it's all, all under all day. I probably would have bet this at two and a half. I probably would. I I think this is a two win team. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know who the two wins are looking at the schedule. Like I just assume that the, I think they'll have to like play somebody who's got an injury or I I would not at home late in the season. That might be the best chance at a conference win. To me, the Air Force is the only team that they might be favored against, but it's on the road at Air Force, and it's a triple option team. And Colorado has like is beyond incompetent offensively last year, and they made it, they somehow managed managed to downgrade at offensive coordinator, and they're going to be more reliant on the offensive line now. A, a group that the offensive line coach was fired midseason last year for poor performance, and then they and they graduate they graduated their top three offensive linemen. So. Or sorry, at least the top two. I, I think there's a third guy in there, but I know Lytle and the left tackle both are gone. So, yeah, give me give me the Colorado under. I feel very very strongly on this. Yeah, we're aligned. Last one. I know where you're at on this one. Arizona two and a half. I'm going fishing, but this non-conference schedule is brutal. You have Mississippi State and North Dakota State, and you have to go to San Diego State. That is brutal. Um, but I think that they get, I think that the, even if they were start to start 0 and 3, which I don't, I think they'll beat North Dakota State. I don't think that they're 
that bad of a football team like some of the Minnesota teams that have lost to North Dakota State over the years. And I think that Jed Fish's offense with a completely different cast of skill players is going to be really, really improved. Uh, but even if they were to start somehow start 0-3, I still like them to hit the over because I think that they're better than uh, Cal, Colorado, um, and I think that they can beat Arizona State. And, and Arizona State, I think, too, like positioning-wise on the schedule at the very end of the season at home, like this Arizona State team could completely implode by then. I think that's a good bet itself. That's that's where I'm at on, on Arizona. Give me the over. I could see anything up to five wins. Um, I got I got the the over here as well. Um, yeah, I think Arizona, I have Arizona State and Colorado kind of chalked up. Both of those games are at home. I kind of those are automatic wins to me. So then all you got to do is find one more, you know, out of ten games on your schedule. And I think, like you said, there's three or four opportunities. It could be a four win team, could be a five win team, but I think three is easy to find three. Okay, so moving on, I think we're going to, in the sake of time, uh, push over national win totals to another to our next pod, so we'll cover that next time. Going kind of a little bit national now, let's talk about some rule changes that are either have happened or rumored to be happening. Um, so, QB, I want to get first your thoughts on the, the removal of the 25-man um, initial counter class. So, as, you know, for those that don't know... It, the rule has been for quite some time now that in any one signing class, you can only sign up to 25, 25 student athletes. Um, and then, of course, you have the 85 man overall roster limit. The 85, the 85 person roster limit is remaining intact, but there is no longer a, a year by year limit. You can sign as many as you want, um, as long as you don't go over the 85. And that's a two year rule change. They didn't make this permanent yet. They said for the next two cycles, it will be it will be no cap. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's going to make teams that need to fire their coaches fire their coaches in the next two years because, like schools, like if you're Arizona State, you are like so excited about this because your roster has been utterly depleted. And while you can plug some holes in the transfer portal, your new staff is going to come in, assuming you can hire a good staff, and completely try to overhaul that roster. And unlike Arizona, who didn't have this luxury and had to do it over two cycles, you're going to be able to bring in 40 new players in one off season. Um, and really weed out and try to try to upgrade talent in as many places as possible. So if you're a team that's down right now or a team that's um, going to be making a coaching change in the near future, this rule is super beneficial to you because it's going to change your rebuild process probably by an entire cycle just based on the fact that you're going to be able to turn over a much larger proportion of your roster than you otherwise would be able to. And not only that, in some cases, like I know Mario Cristobal in, in 2018 at Oregon only had 67 scholarship players. Like you're not going to be caught in a position where you are stuck by rule playing at like 20, almost 20 scholarships under what is allowed by the NCAA. So um, this is a really big rule for teams that are in transition, teams that are trying to improve quickly and under new coaching staffs. I also think that this is a big rule for teams that recruit at a high level because now you're not having to get as creative with counting back um, early enrollees and all that stuff. You get to just go hit your numbers and and do what you need to do from a roster management standpoint uh, to stay at 85. I think all that is, is right on. I think one of the things you hear some fans worry about or almost freak out about is, oh, no, now Bama and Georgia are just going to sign 40 kids every year and take all the best talent and stockpile it. I think that's overblown. Give me your thoughts on that. If they, they already had basically broken this rule, right? They added the extra seven for transfers. So if you have transfers out... Like, which is how attrition works in college football. So seven guys you leave here now, the the SEC schools are already back to signing 
32, which is essentially the oversigning problem that this rule was implemented to stop. So I, I, I don't see this as a, a change for that. In fact, I think that overall, this is good for the health of college football. Um, the only people that this potentially hurts is the lower to mid-level high school prospects who are going to have less opportunities um, based on the fact that there's more freedom of movement for transfers. And if you're an FCS school, getting you you have you have a lot of available tape on some of these transfers down from the FBS level. Are you gonna are you if you're a coach whose job's on the line, are you gonna go off of tape of FBS football, or are you gonna go try to make and hit on projections for lower level kids coming out of high school? And so I think what might happen with this is I think we might see JUCO becoming more of a option for high school kids. Yeah. And that trend that you just mentioned about, you know, less spots for high school kids because more transfers are happening has already been happening the last, you know, two or three cycles as it is. So it, this could be making that a little bit, a little bit worse, if you will. But, but I think that trend already is, is growing anyway. So how big of an impact is hard to say. Yeah. And we'll see. I, I think that, I think overall it'll come out in the wash. But I think that this actually might have more implications at the FCS level than it does at the FBS level. Right. And I think you touched on initially the biggest impact at the FBS level is that it's actually going to help out teams that that are have been in a bad place for a while and and are switching their coaching coaching staffs and need to rebuild their roster and get it back up to full strength. It's going to it's going to help those teams enormously, which actually then will also help whether you're talking about transfers or JUCOs or high school kids, now there's more, there's actually could be more spots available in some cases because now there was that artificial cap that's no longer there. Yeah. In some cases, I just think that with the transfer portal, like we've heard about it at Oregon, like, Oh, well we might take this player, but honestly the coaching staff would really like to keep a spot or two open to see what shakes loose. Right. And so now you don't have to hold those spots open to see what shakes loose. And you might be able to shake something loose on your own roster to get an extra spot. Cause that's always been the case everywhere, right? Like there are certain players that are so good that you will take them and figure out how to make it work from a number standpoint later. Uh, but just again, generally and broadly, I think that this will expedite the rebuild that some of these programs that have struggled recently um, are going to be undergoing here in the future. Yeah. Which is shockingly actually a move, if you will, in favor of parity, which, you know, it's not going to, it's not creating parity. It's not going to fix the lack of parity, but you know, we always hear so much about how everything in college football is hurting parity. This is actually something that actually goes a little bit in the opposite direction. Ultimately the best teams in college football are still going to be built through prep recruiting. So really what this allows for is teams to not get stuck in a situation where they're well below the 85, which again is making sure that there's more scholarships out there for these kids to capitalize on. Cause again, when Oregon's at 67 and can't take any more players, that sucks for the kids. Like there's, there's 18 kids out there who don't get a spot. Shifting over to another rule change that hasn't happened yet, but it's getting a lot of traction is around the work that's going on in the Division One Council to, to kind of set rules and structures for how they want to manage D1 sports going forward. One of the one of the ideas being tossed around is that the removal of coaching limits. So right now in football, you have 11 on-field paid coaches allowed and no more. But the, the idea is that for any sport, you can have as many paid coaches as you want. What yeah. would the impact of that be? Well, um, I think you're going to see staff expansion in the Big Ten and SEC. The schools that have the most TV revenue are going to be able to consolidate more and more coaches. Um, but I do think that one thing that gets overblown is like, oh, this is just going to help the rich get richer. Like, yes, it will. 
to a certain extent, but there is still the law of diminishing returns. Um, for instance, I know James Crepia, the writer at the Oregonian, had uh, had a conversation with me the other day. Brought this up: like the biggest staffs in the MLB don't always win. You know what I mean? Like the Yankees aren't winning all the time. The same thing in in basketball. So um, in the NBA. So I there's obviously a happy medium. I I'm kind of unsure on this rule. I like the eleven on-field coaches personally, um, but if teams have the money and want to pay for additional coaching to help the development of these kids. It's hard to argue against. Um, I think there needs to be some kind of limit. Just if if you're going to be operating from the assumption that college football is going to operate in at least something similar to the sphere it operates in now from a competitive standpoint, where there's a power five or a power four, um, with how much there's a lack of equity from a TV deal standpoint and a revenue standpoint, I think that this could really put some of these smaller programs even further behind. So we'll, we'll see how it ends up working out. I, I think I think it's a smaller deal than it initially was when I saw it for the first time. Uh, but I do think that it does hurt smaller programs with less funding. So we'll, we'll see. I agree with that. I'm just not sure how much in football, how much it hurts them maybe more than they already are, right? Because the, the, the programs that have all the deep pockets are already paying for armies and armies of, of analysts and consultants that, that, yeah, they can't coach on the field, but they're, they're doing so much off of the field. So, you know, would would there be actual additional staff at these programs or would it just be more of those guys are are now a paid coach instead of a paid off-field, you know, analyst? This, uh, is, my, this is my argument against that take, though, okay? okay? So you have, you're at Alabama as an analyst, okay? Um, and you get poached away for an on-the-field job by let's just say Texas tech. Okay. Like that is a better opportunity for you because there's a scarcity of on field positions. If you're an on the field coach at Alabama, you're not leaving for Texas tech unless it's an obvious promotion to a coordinator role of some kind. So I, I do think that it might end up in the consolidation, a little bit of coaching talent at certain schools, but by and large, I think that you'll see there be a pretty normalized level of staffing across the board, at least for the power two conferences, the Big Ten and the SEC. That makes sense. And there's also a diminishing returns factor, right? Like yeah. at some point, the adding another coach is not worth. It's a, it actually becomes counterproductive at at a point, right, where you have too many people that are that are actually you know working against each other, you know, more so than with each other. I don't know what that point is, but it's it's there. I yeah. think that the more interesting thing here, and this isn't really the, the scope of our pod, but I think this is actually a move that could help a lot in other sports. Yes, I 100% agree with that. Basketball. Yeah, the basketball limit is really low. Yeah, so I think basketball is... We'll see. I, I, um, I think you would immediately see the bigger programs hire an extra two to three coaches, though. Especially if the recruiting... Because the problem right now is analysts can't do off-field recruiting. Right. If if it created a situation where you could basically just bring on on-field recruiting assistants who can be out on the road, I think that you see this thing balloon. Yeah, this thing balloons. Because, like, Bama was the one that changed the infrastructural model for college football first. They're the ones that hired the analysts. They're the ones that built out a real personnel department. And they've been, they've had a structural advantage. That's why Nick Saban's the best CEO in college football because of that like they've been aggressive they've had a lot of funding for it and like we saw this year billy napier gets hired they're giving him an 8.5 million dollar not assistant pool 8.5 million analysts off the field personnel department 
pool to hire talent with. I mean, they've hired like 35 people for their off the field department. So I, it is an advantage. I, yeah. I think that having the on field limit be what it is, is a healthy thing for college football ultimately. Um, but I think that this rule could be beneficial for other sports. So I, I'm kind of split on it. I, I'll have to see how it ends up manifesting. I wonder if, if it could be some sort of hybrid approach where you can hire more coaches, but you're, you could, you're still limited to only 11 recruiting coaches or something like that, where it maybe doesn't have quite the bat, the, as big of an impact on recruiting if you did it that way. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I, uh, I think, I think what they're trying to accomplish and why it's popular is they're trying to create a way for balance for these coaches, like in their personal lives. Cause at current, like what is the time off for a college football coach? And like, yeah, we can all say, oh yeah, they get paid all this money, blah, 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 blah. Like, that's fine. That job is a grind and a half. And like, I, I think that the average football fan doesn't understand that. And so of course coaches are for this. They can build out their department bigger and like, and, and get to have a little bit more time with their families. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll see, how, we'll see how it plays out over time, but. All right. Well, that's going to put the wraps on the inaugural episode of the QB 11 show. I'm your host, Doug Scott, and of course, QB11 here with me. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, be sure to tune in to our next episode. We'll be coming at you real soon and have a lot more great content for you. Thank you for listening.